All right. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. Can you, is, can you hear this well? Kind of. I'm gonna turn the music off. There we go. Can you guys hear me well? I. I it's this mic feels weird. I'm sorry. This is why churches do mic checks. The mic. This something's off with this mic. Can you guys hear it in the back? I hate to do this. Blake, can you? It just feels low. You can hear me well because my voice projects. I've always been like the loudest person in the room. Everyone knows when I'm around because I'm so loud. I get it all the time. Um, but I, I don't want to kill my vocals, which I easily can. Am I good? Can you hear it? I, I hate to do this. All right, we're good. We're good. Well, let's just do it. It doesn't matter, right? Um, well, good morning. Good to be with you guys. Um, this is a, uh, the second of three sermons on our vision. And I've prepared a statement, and I'm going to say it again. I said this last week, but uh, let me just start with this. At the heart of every organization is a mission. A mission gives an organization its focus and a direction. At Central, it is our mission to be loved and to love, to humble ourselves before God and others, that we might receive the love of God and neighbor. It is vital that we receive this love, for it is the very basis from which we can live the purpose God has for our lives, to love. As the Apostle John says, we love because He first loved us. Our mission includes both being loved and loving. Loving God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is this mission, to be loved and to love, that gives this church its focus, its direction, and it is my hope, it is the thing that characterizes what this church is known for. For a church that is loved and being, or be loved, that's loved and loves. But the mission isn't easy. No, I'm convinced that the greatest problem in the North American church is not a willingness to love, but rather a willingness to be loved. And this is because we are prideful, stubborn, insolent, self-sufficient, self-righteous, and so much more. To be loved is an assault to our dignity, our honor, and our pride. It's hard. Likewise, the call to love God and to love others is difficult. We need to learn about God. We need to study His Word. We need to worship the Creator rather than the created. Yet these are things that we oftentimes fail to do. Our neighbor is also insolent, difficult, and prideful. And so to move into the love of our neighbor shows itself to be difficult as well. Our mission is not easy. How in the world then can we do this? Well, we need to see a picture. I think one of the best ways to pursue the mission we've been called to is to see a picture of what can happen when a people commits themselves to doing the very things God has called us to do, to be loved and to love. And when we see that picture, we are fueled in the great mission God has given us. This is what uh, management theorists call a vision. The picture is a vision. An organization has a vision. And the vision is what gives its gives the, the, the organization its fuel and its drive. And the question becomes for us, what is this church's vision? What as a church do we want to see? And what I've said and what I present to you once again today is this church longs to see transformed lives and a transformed city. We believe that if we are a people that pursue the mission God has given to us, people are going to be changed and so will our city. 
And so for three weeks, this is the second of three weeks, we're going to be focusing on an aspect of this vision, whether it is what it could look like to go from entitlement to thankfulness, or as today, and the case study we'll do today is, how are we going to get to the place where we can see transformed lives? And the, what I'm presenting today is this. If we're going to be a people that see transformed lives in a transformed community, we've got to be scandalously hospitable. We need to be a people who are scandalously hospitable. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke 7, 36 through 50. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We have a bulletin insert with the Scripture text there today. We'll be reading the entirety of it. Hear now the Word of God. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who who, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last five years, you know that we live in a very polarizing time. Republicans against Democrats, Democrats against Republicans. Rarely is there ever a time when the two can sit at the same table and even have a normal conversation about things that actually matter rather than themselves. It's just the reality of our time. You either watch CNN or you watch News. It's just what we are. It applies to religion too. We can't be Christians in the public sphere because the church is separated from the state. Is it the state in and of itself you can't talk about religion? But this is the pressure that we feel. That religion itself is something that needs to be privatized. 
and away from the public sect. But here's the thing as Christians, and this is the, the, the tough thing about being a Christian in the midst of this polarizing time, is that we have in, experienced incredible truths. And we've experienced these truths deeply. We've experienced the power of God that comes from salvation through faith. We've experienced the forgiveness of sins that comes from Jesus through His life and through His death as an atonement for our sins. We've been loved by God in and through Jesus. And we've experienced this deeply to the point that we can relate to the woman who is sitting at Jesus' feet weeping. Many of us know these emotions. And yet, we're in the midst of this polarizing world where it's like, don't you dare bring your love of God to neighbor. But as Christians, we have this deep desire to bring it. And yet the world doesn't want to hear it. So what do we do as Christians? If the world doesn't want anything to do with the great God who we worship and serve and love, how in the world do we move into the world and introduce the world to the love of God? In past, people have said, let's just get away from the world. This is the way that the Amish have kind of set themselves up. We're not going to have anything to do with the world. We're going to create our own enclave, our own community. But in truth, this is no good. How is the world going to know about your great God if you've isolated yourself from them? Others have said this. We need to drop truth bombs on people and just call them out for what it is and just say, deal with it. You're irrational. You're not making sense and you're not connecting. And regardless of whether it's true or not, oftentimes it is true. The people don't want to hear truth bombs. Who wants to be bombed? Yeah, I want to be loved by that. So we don't move into the world with truth bombs and we don't leave the world. How do we do this? I think the way we need to move into the world, bringing the love of God, the transforming love of God, is far more scandalous than moving away from the world and dropping truth bombs. It's being hospitable. It's being hospitable. The story we read in Luke 7 is a story of scandalous hospitality. And what I want to do this morning is I want to set this up as a vision for us for how we can be scandalously hospitable. That we might learn from Jesus how we can move into the midst of this world bringing the transformation we long for the people that we love, for our neighbors, our co-workers, our, our politicians, for our family. And see how Jesus is so scandalously hospitable, but how it is so transforming at the same time. And so this morning, I want to look at four characteristics of scandalous hospitality in Luke 7. There's four. If you like taking notes, you can follow along with these four. And that's four. I know that's a lot. And you're sitting there going, are you kidding me? We're going to sit here through four points? Trust me, we're going to go pretty quickly. The introduction was quick. That was good. I was, I'm thinking for you, all right? So what is the first characteristic of scandalous hospitality we see from Jesus? It's this. That scandalous hospitality welcomes. It welcomes. In verses 37 and 38, we read, Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind Him at His feet, weeping, she began to wet His feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed His feet and anointed them with ointment. 
Now, I really want you to not just hear these words. I want you to picture these words. I want you to picture how this scene is playing out right before the people who were there. Right before their eyes. I'm going to do this by walking you through this again. We see a woman... A woman of the city, what most commentators believe to be a prostitute, who is at the feet of Jesus while she's standing at first, and she is weeping. We can only presume that she is grateful for Jesus, that He's kind to the down and outs, that she, is, that, that, that she has seen Him care for those who aren't often cared for. And so she's grateful, and these tears are dripping down on Jesus' dirty feet to the point that she's able to get down on her knees Unlock her hair. And not use a rag, which was probably available on the table they were eating on. But she uses her hair to wash Jesus' feet. You've got to understand that for a woman in this time period, to unravel her hair and to show it to the world was equivalent to an adult woman bearing her breast today. It was scandalous. It was it was. Very sensual. Like men would be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And yet here is Jesus, not only with a woman, not interceding, but allowing her to take her hair and wash his feet with it. But this woman continues. She gets down on her knees and begins to kiss Jesus' feet. Have you had someone kiss your feet before? I don't, you know, if you're married, that's great. I, you know, hey, I mean, like, you know. regardless, it's awkward. It is awkward. Yet, here's this woman kissing Jesus' feet. We would expect a kind person at some point in the midst of all of these social faux pas to look at her and say, hey, 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 it's okay. Like, I get it. I get it. Stop. You don't, you don't have to embarrass yourself. A kind person would do that. But Jesus doesn't do this at all. He lets her do all these things. He actually welcomes her right in the midst. All her messiness, all her cultural faux pas, He welcomes in His presence. It is beautiful. It is scandalous. You see that Jesus is willing to be associated in this scene with a prostitute. Someone who's looked down upon by the world, especially the Jewish religious, as we will encounter here in just a second. He's willing to lose his reputation for even being in her presence. But he welcomes her. He doesn't scold her. He welcomes her. We've got to see this. Scandalous hospitality welcomes. One of the hardest stories in my life came in 2011. My wife had received an email from a good friend of ours. And she's also a friend of my sister's. The email came out of concern for my sister. You see, my sister was in a same-sex relationship. And we didn't know this at the time. And our friend wanted us to know. And being... Uh, wanting to honor God and follow His ways and to, to pursue what we believe to be God's way for marriage, this was very heartbreaking, especially considering my, my sister was raised in the same settings. And I was mad. And I was angry. And I was confused. I didn't know what to do. 
I really didn't. How do I deal with this? My mom and dad are going to freak out. And it took me two days, lots of crying, weeping, mourning. It took me two days to finally give my sister a phone call. And I said, I know what's going on. And you could hear an audible <gasps> on the other line. First words out of her mouth, have you told mom? No, I haven't told mom. And so it was hard. And, she, and I said to her, I said, you know that I don't believe what you're doing is right. I know that you, you know that. But here's the thing, Barrett. I've got to apologize to you for being so distant from you for the last two years. I've got to apologize for being non-existent as a brother. And I'm sorry for that. If you would, would you allow me to learn a little bit about your now girlfriend? She was taken back. So two days later, I called her back. All right, Barrett, tell me about her. I didn't believe in what she was doing, but I welcomed her. Yeah, it's scandalous in the circles that I run in, but I welcomed her. Jesus did the same thing with the woman in the city, and He does it with us. You know, the vision I'm trying to present for us is that we become a scandalous people who welcome people that don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't believe the same things that we believe. This is what it means to be scandalously hospitable, to welcome those who are far different from you. You can disagree with them, but you can still welcome them. Just because you might not align with the way that they believe or walk and talk doesn't mean that you can't be in their presence. Jesus showed us this. And so as a people, as a church, my vision for us is that we would be a welcoming church. Yes, we have things that we believe in. Yes, we're true to certain things. But we are also a people who scandalously welcome people that people would not imagine having in our church. They would not imagine having in our homes. This is what it means to be scandalously hospitable. To welcome those who are different than us. So Jesus shows us that to be scandalously hospitable, we need to welcome. The second thing, and this is beautiful, the second characteristic of scandalous hospitality that Jesus shows to us this morning is that He defends. That scandalous hospitality defends. The host Simon is seeing this very scandalous interaction between Jesus and the prostitute and he wonders to himself and he says this, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. Of course, Jesus is privy to this thought, not only because he's God, but I think if you you or me were in this situation, you'd probably be thinking, yeah, the religious person's thinking this very thought. So it's not like he needs some super mind reader thing. No, Jesus just knows that this is what this religious man is doing. He's critiquing me. And so Jesus, privy to what's going on, looks at him and he goes, hey, Simon, I got something for you. Let's talk. Come on, let's talk. And what does Jesus do? He says this, A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, Well, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Look at what Jesus does here. You have judged rightly. You have judged rightly. What is Jesus doing? For this woman, right here and right now, he's defending her. Jesus is defending the woman whom Simon was judging. 
And He's coming to her defense. It is beautiful. It is it's scandalous. Jesus is the one calling out the host. And He's coming to her aid. One of my favorite stories, and I've told this and I'll continue telling it probably to the day I die, comes from September 4th, 1957 here in Little Rock. Of course, I'm referring to the Central High School integration crisis just down the road from here. Now, on that day, nine black students had the courage to integrate the high school just by themselves. They were courageous because the governor of Arkansas, Orville Faubus, had commissioned the Arkansas National Guard to defend the doors from the nine students, saying blood will run in the streets if Negro pupils should attempt to enter the high school. And leading them on that day was a white man named Dunbar Ogden. Dunbar Ogden was the pastor of Central Presbyterian Church. And he heeded the call by Daisy Bates, the leader of the NAACP here in Little Rock, to be a community advocate for those children. She thought that to have a white pastor, a white, well-respected pastor, leading the charge for these children would be a great defense in the midst of the chaos ensuing from those doors. And it was tough for him. Dunbar wrestled with it. But he thought it was good to come to the defense of these children. And so when they got the call, it's time to go to school, Dunbar was the lone man walking these children to school that day. And trust me, it was horrible. But here's the thing. It was scandalously hospitable. In a town that didn't want to see integration, to have a white man defending the, the, the black children who are seeking to integrate their school Oh, it was scandalous. This is what Jesus has done. As a church, it's what we do too. We defend the powerless. We fight for those who have no voice. We fight for the unborn child. We fight for the person who's being picked on. We fight for them. We defend because this is what it means to be scandalously hospitable. And sometimes it's as simple as this. When you see a friend being picked on, and it still happens to us as adults, we say, stop. This is an image bearer of God. And to, def to, to defraud them, that's terrible. What are you doing? It happened to me this week in a text chain. You know what it means to be in a text chain, and especially when you get guys together. Another guy started ripping another guy, and I realized it's in jest, but I said, no, you can't do that. You can't rip. And that's what it means to be scandalously hospitable. It means to stick your neck out and to defend those who don't have the ability to defend themselves, which is exactly what Jesus did. So as a church, how are we to be scandalously hospitable? How do I long to us to see to be as scandalously hospitable? We welcome and we come to the defense of those who aren't able to defend themselves. So those two characteristics. The third one. The third one is that we're that scandalous hospitality honors. The third characteristic is that scandalous hospitality honors. I love what Jesus does right after He comes to the woman's defense. Look at this, verse 44. I think it's one of the most interesting statements in the Bible. Jesus turns towards the woman and then He begins to speak to Simon. He turns to the woman 
And then he's talking to Simon. What is he doing? He's showing Simon what it means to honor those around him. Look at this. He says to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Do you see? He's honoring her. He's taking Simon's thought of how he's being hospitable because he's got Jesus in his house. He's taking all the cultural faux pas that this woman just embraced as she's embracing it. And he then says, what she is doing is far more honorable than what you're doing having me in your house. Because you didn't do anything like this. You didn't do the things that were hospitable. And he took what was culturally faux pas, culturally no-no, and he says, do you see how amazing this is? Do you see how much she loves? I mean, imagine yourself being that woman. Oh, you know what you're doing is a no-no, but you're so compelled by your love of Jesus, you just don't care anymore. And there might be a certain thought in your mind, I'm going to be judged for this, but you don't care. And then when Jesus looks at you and then affirms you and honors that, you want to talk about being welcomed? You want to talk about feeling like you belong at someone's feet? It's when they honor you. There is nothing more powerful in the midst of hospitality than honoring our guests. And scandalous hospitality honors our guests even when they're messy and unculturally sound. Jesus is able to see right through it. And so should we. This week I read a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I want you to write that down. The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I cannot encourage you to read it enough. It is written by a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. It is so good. But in the midst of this book, she tells this story of her relationship with a neighbor named Hank. Hank was a recluse and an oddball. He rarely interacted with anyone in the neighborhood. They only saw him walking the dog and digging holes in the backyard. Of course, no one, saw, no one wanted to befriend him except Rosaria. Being a Christian and desiring to share with Hank the love of God in Christ, she prayed and prayed and prayed that God would give her an opportunity to befriend him. And God answered that prayer through the dogs. Hank loved dogs. And so did Rosaria. And through these dogs, they formed a relationship. Just a relationship, an acquaintance, not a friendship. And one day, Hank's dog went missing. And the Butterfield family, Rosario's family, said, let's come to Hank's aid. And so they printed out posters and pinned it up all around the neighborhood. They posted on Nextdoor app, if you see this dog, which was at a 100-pound pit bull, <laughs> if you see this dog, please let us know. And they searched and they searched and they searched and they searched. It took them one week to look for this dog. And after a week, they found this dog. This led then to Hank trusting Rosaria. And they went from acquaintances to friends. And they began to walk their dogs together. And Rosaria's children started to walk with this recluse, this oddball, this person that nobody liked in the neighborhood. 
And they started to talk about the eagles and the trees and the, and the meadow by their home. And they had a friendship. They had a friendship. And one morning, Rosario was drinking coffee and all of a sudden, all these DEA and FBI cars come booming up to Hank's door, surrounding the house. What is going on, Rosario thought. Little did she know, Hank was running a crystal meth um, I guess you'd call it a, a, I mean he was making it he was making it in his home and the FBI got wind of it and they busted him and being friends the only friends in the neighborhood with Hank all of, all of the neighbors started to gossip about them oh Rosaria knew they had to know they would even gossip to her face I guess it's not gossip you had to know they would talk bad but Rosaria didn't care she didn't care what they thought about their relationship because she knew their relationship was clean with her. And this is what she did. She wanted to honor the friendship that she established through these dogs. And when Hank went to prison, so did Rosaria. So did her husband. And so did her kids. They continued to honor him, giving him cards and writing him letters and telling him about Jesus they honored him when no one else was willing to honor him. He's the meth addict in the neighborhood. He's the guy that digs holes in the yard. I don't want anything to do with it. But Rosario said, no, we honor the oddballs. This is what we do. A year ago, Hank became a Christian. He became a Christian because of the witness that Rosario had to our Lord and Savior who honors oddballs. Friends, may we be a church that honors the oddballs, the culturally weird people, honoring them, giving them our time. This is the characteristic of scandalous hospitality. But there's one last characteristic, and that is this. Scandalous hospitality pays. Scandalous hospitality pays. After welcoming, defending, and honoring this woman, Jesus finally speaks directly to her. I think if we witnessed this in person, we would all be sitting on the edge of our seat. What is Jesus finally going to say to this woman? <laughs> he's defended her. He's welcomed her. He's honored her. What is He now going to say to her? Look what He says. Your sins are forgiven. Okay, what? What? After all this interaction, this is what Jesus says? Your sins are forgiven. The statement startles everyone in the room. You see this. Who is this? Who even forgives sins? Meaning, why is Jesus forgiving her sins? How could He do this? He doesn't know her. Maybe even they think, maybe she's wronged him. Maybe it's his former wife. They don't know. Jesus doesn't care. And he looks at her and laughs. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. With these last words that he says to the woman, Jesus demonstrates the most meaningful and significant characteristic of scandalous hospitality. And that is this. A willingness to pay for the hospitality. Make no mistake. 
This woman is not just forgiven and just like, whoo, you can just go and no big deal about your life. And she is a prostitute. She is one who breaks one of the most key, key characteristics of God's law. Don't commit adultery. She doesn't deserve to be in the presence of God. She deserves to be moved away. And yet Jesus is welcoming her. Jesus is defending her. Jesus is honoring her. Jesus is paying for her to be in His presence. And how does Jesus pay for her to be in His presence? By giving His life for her. You see, not too long after this occasion, Jesus will go to a cross without sin, without breaking any of the commandments of God, that He might be a right atonement for the ones who have broken sins, who have broken the law. This woman, you and me. Jesus welcomes, defends, honors, and pays for her with His own body. He pays for you to be in His presence with His own body and His own blood. This is ultimately what scandalous hospitality is going to cost. Hospitality is always costly. Always. Especially with Jesus. Let me tell you something. There is no greater thing in life than to be in communion with God. You were made to be in relationship with Him for God to be your home. And the way that that can be done is through the payment through Christ's life, His death, and ultimately His resurrection. Do you know that? Do you know that Jesus pays for you to be in communion with God? He does. He does. Scandalous hospitality always costs something. It cost Dunbar Ogden something significantly. When he made the choice to walk and defend those, those children on that day, it cost him dearly. When he went and walked on September 4th, 1957, there were 500 members of Central Presbyterian Church of Little Rock. 500 members. By Christmas, there was 250. And the 250 in his audience wouldn't even look at him when he's preaching. They were so upset. By the spring of 58, the elders had, had to do something. The church was losing money. The church was low in attendance. And they had to make the decision to let Ogden go from his job. All because he came to the defense of those children. He showed hospitality to them. Scandalous hospitality to them. And he paid for it with his job. But it wasn't just his job that he paid for it with. He paid for it in his family. And this is hard. If you read his autobiography, it's one of the, or his biography, it's one of the hardest things, and this is difficult. But in the midst of the stress that broke out during this time, because he would do Bible studies with the families of the kids every week, the stress that would break out in his family, the bomb threats that he had, the threats of acid being squirted at them in their faces, it caused so much stress in his children that I think his, his second oldest son had PTSD. And three years after his dad walked with those children, his son took his own life. If you read his biography, one of the things that Dunbar Ogden will say is, I don't regret anything in my life with the exception of my son. 
He paid for those children's freedom in some ways through His Son. It's scandalous. It's scandalous. Scandalous hospitality pays. I put this to you. It's going to require your life to be scandalously hospitable. To see lives changed for good. To see our city transformed for good. It's going to take your life. It is. It's just the reality of it, guys. But we don't do it to try to get God's favor. We give it because the Son gave up His life for us. And He paid for us through His body. And we just follow in His footsteps. If we're going to be a people that moves into this polarizing world, we've got to be scandalously hospitable, guys. We've got to welcome those who we typically don't welcome. We've got to defend the down and the outs. We've got to honor the oddball. And we've got to pay the price. And we pay the price because our God paid the price for us to be in communion with Him. May God do this in our midst. And maybe you be a church that many look back on and say, wow, God has done amazing things. Let me pray. it is true, I have run from them. I'm sure my friends in here have run from them as well. Oh, but give us your grace. Remind us of your own scandalous hospitality offered to us. Oddballs. May we then in turn, having received your scandalous hospitality, give that to others to the oddballs, and to the people like us, to all. Do this, Lord, and receive your glory.